Building a culture of challenge. I cannot recall a single board evaluation, nor a single event that I attended, where the need for challenge in the boardroom was not stressed. At the same time, I know from hundreds of interviews with members of boards, how hard it really is to challenge constructively in the boardroom. Welcome to the Better Boards podcast series. In this episode, I'm delighted to talk with Professor Ramana about building a culture of challenge. Professor Ramana wrote a noteworthy paper about the culture of challenge for one of the big four audit firms. We thought that Professor Ramana's insights are invaluable for boards. In this podcast, we explore how his insights into building a culture of challenge can be transferred into the boardroom. I'm Dr. Sabine Demkowski, founder and managing partner of Better Boards. We make the boards of the most ambitious organizations more effective. Our mission at Better Boards is to contribute to creating better boards. We do this by providing clients with an evidence-based approach for board evaluations and board development programs. To fulfill our mission, we give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. Welcome to the Better Boards podcast series, Professor Ramana. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You wrote a fascinating report, A Culture of Challenge. What sparked the title of your report? That's a great question. I think that when I was first approached as to whether I might be able to help this particular audit firm in thinking about some of the questions that had been raised about the way the firm engages with its clients and with its broader responsibilities in society, I thought long and hard about where it is I wanted to really focus my effort. And it occurred to me that the most powerful lever that a firm has in the way it drives performance is not through explicit or express measures, but rather through the implicit culture that it creates and sustains. And so part of what I wanted to do was to home in on some very practical and precise ways in which an audit firm that is really in the business of challenge, that's why we want auditors to be there, to challenge clients, to ask them difficult questions about performance measurement and reporting, and therefore difficult questions about the underlying operations and strategy of the firm. How do we take that challenge and build it into the DNA of audit firms? And that's how we arrived at the title Culture of Challenge. And you see, when I came across the report and read it, I thought, wow, This is so powerful and can be directly applied to the boardrooms. Indeed, when I was writing the report, a large part of what I was thinking about is who is the primary client of the audit firm? And the primary client of the audit firm oftentimes gets mistakenly thought of as the CFO or the CEO. But that's not the case. The primary client of the audit firm are the non-executive directors on the board who represent the investors in the firm. The non-executive directors are there on part of the investors to see that the CEO and the CFO are doing the job that they've been appointed to do. And so when I wrote the report, I very much had the NEDs in mind. And a lot of what I say in the report, I think, translates well into the space of what NEDs can be doing to build and sustain an effective culture of challenge. 
Absolutely. Let's dive right into what you are saying. What does it really take to build a culture of challenge? You point out four specific areas and let's get into each of those. Sure. So I've identified four elements to building and sustaining a culture of challenge. The first is people. The second is shared beliefs. The third is an alignment structure. And the fourth is about processes. By people, I mean, you really need on boards people with great judgment. Matters usually come to the board for decision when there are no easy right answers. If there are easy right answers to the problem, they will be settled at a lower level. When they come to the board, it's because there's a difficult trade-off, so-called right versus right trade-off, or a wrong versus wrong trade-off that has to be made. Those kind of trade-offs require great judgment, and you want people with good judgment on the board. If you've got people who have built their careers, built their reputations through the exercise of good judgment, that's a really strong signal. If you've got people who have built their careers by checking boxes or by being yes men or yes women, then that's actually much less compelling for the skill set that you need on the board. There's one point you stressed in this people chapter, which is you talk about the technical ability to challenge. And that is what I found particularly interesting. Let me pick up on the theme of a technical ability to challenge. I raised this in the report on audit practice in the context of the kind of technical skills that auditors must bring to the table. By technical skills, I don't mean sort of an arcane understanding of audit rules or of accounting rules, but I mean the ability to apply broad principles of performance measurement in the context of evaluating strategy. Everyone who is on a board should be bringing some sort of disciplinary or specific skill to that board. For instance, they might be an expert on auditing, in which case they would sit in the audit committee, or they might be an expert on marketing, in which case they might be providing some advice on the strategic side of things. They might be an expert on the remuneration process and on appointments, and in which case they would be sitting on the appointments committee. They might, in fact, be an expert on cybersecurity matters, in which case they're advising the board on those sorts of issues. So again, the kind of questions that will come to a board or that should come to a board are questions in each of these domains that don't have easy right answers. Now, to answer those questions, to help the firm navigate that challenge requires judgment, but it's not a broad generalist judgment per se, but rather some element of specific technical judgment that has to be applied. So For instance, in the context of an audit committee, you might be offered with two alternative and perhaps equally legitimate ways of accounting for a particular merger or a particular transaction. Yes, there will be an element of general managerial judgment that will help you address that question, but having some specific technical expertise to bring to bear on the question of the exercise of that judgment, you want to ensure that you have at least one or two board members who can bring that. Similarly, in choosing on a cyber strategy, on a cybersecurity strategy, or choosing across alternative, equally compelling cybersecurity approaches for the firm, the way it thinks about the ownership of data within the firm, the way it thinks about protocols around safety within the firm, you want to have people that have specific technical expertise and can exercise judgment in the context of that expertise. That's what I mean by the technical judgment to challenge. 
So, and when we do board evaluations at the moment, there are certain areas that come up again and again where there seems to be a gap in know-how on boards. And that tends to be on transformation, on digital and on cyber know-how, and also a bit on ESG. When you talk now about this technical ability to challenge, what do boards need to do to fill these areas, to have the people in these areas that they have the technical ability to challenge? It's interesting that you mentioned those areas around transformation, digital, ESG, and cyber, in part because the supply of really sound technical judgment in each of those areas is quite limited. I've recently become more involved in the ESG space, in part because I have a background in accounting and performance measurement issues. And I saw increasingly companies making bold claims about ESG and their environmental impact. But as we started probing those reports, we saw that there was very little strategic thinking to them. It was very hard to make sense of what was being said. So what you need in that space is someone who has a sound basis or background in measurement, in business measurement, in performance measurement, someone who perhaps has cut their teeth in a financial control type position, but has since broadened out to think about issues of strategy, particularly non-market strategy, since that's what primarily affects ESG. Similarly, when you think about something like transformation and also digital, oftentimes the kind of expertise that people bring to bear on this will be people with deep functional competence. But that functional competence often tends to overwhelm the ability to recognize or anticipate how humans will use that technology. The greatest challenges in transformation and in digital are often not with the technology itself, but they're in the way people within the organization interact with that technology. Mm-hmm. It's again, you know, going back to the theme of culture, it's around how do you create a culture of adoption around a particular technology? How do you anticipate how users will embrace a particular digital rollout? Those are questions of judgment that come from experience, right? Mm-hmm. Those are questions of judgment that come from both the sound understanding of the underlying technology, but from the way it is applied into practice. I'll give you a quick example. In the course of the last year, the program that I direct at Oxford, the Master of Public Policy program, which educates people for roles, senior roles in government, we've had to respond to COVID and we've had to go online. We've had to go into the hybrid classroom where half of the students might be in the room and the other half would be online. So we had to innovate with all kinds of software. We had to innovate with AI technologies to allow for moving cameras that would identify the active speaker. We had to innovate with all kinds of visual display platforms, et cetera. And of course, there was this large element of it that involved choosing across technologies. Mm-hmm. But the number one issue that always guided the way we made those decisions was from the perspective of the user experience which is to say, how will the user interact with this technology? That's really important. So when we think about the question of technical judgment in the context of, say, digital, the hardest challenges, the hardest questions are about that issue, about getting the culture to work with the technology or getting, importantly, the technology to fit into the culture. 
So when we buy technology or we build technology or we build capacity into an organization, we have to think about how that technology is going to fit into how the users in the organization currently see it. And then over time, if we're successful, that technology itself will change the organization. It's that transformation process that's often where boards can exercise a lot of strategic judgment and discretion. And that's the kind of skill you want on the board. Oh, absolutely. I would love to keep going, but let's focus on these other three points <laughs> which you validly made. The next one was shared beliefs. What needs to be done to really establish shared beliefs? So when I talk about shared beliefs, I mean the following. I mean, what are the narratives that board members or prospective board members should be hearing about the culture of your board, about the culture of your company? For instance, in the context of the audit firms, one of the questions that I was very interested in was, what are the narratives being shared by rank and file auditors about the culture of the audit partnership? Do they tell stories at the water cooler about partners who challenged clients and eventually went on to be promoted to senior leadership roles? Or do they tell stories about whistleblowers who got hounded out of the organization? That's really important. Mm -hmm. If the rank and file in your organization are not asking and are not hearing the right stories about what shapes the beliefs of the organization, that changes everything about the kind of people you attract and the kind of behaviors you sustain. So for instance, if you're looking to join a board or if you're looking to attract top tier talent to the board, that individual who you're trying to recruit will probably ask around about the culture. Suppose they hear the following, oh, when I joined that board, I made sure I was quiet for the first year so that I could just sort of, you know, listen to what everybody was saying and understand the organization before I offered a view. My sense is that the most important people that you want on the board will probably not be interested in that board after all. <laughs> Because why would they join an organization simply to be quiet for a year and simply to not exercise their judgment? The only people who'd want to do that are the people who are joining the board simply for the money, mm. simply for the reputation they're not going to be able to add value to the organization in the long run. In fact, the most valuable perspective that a board member can bring is within the first six months of being appointed because they'll have fresh lenses, right? Because they wouldn't have learned all the bad habits that your organization has. Now, every organization will have bad habits. There isn't an organization in the world that doesn't. So it's impossible to deny that your organization will have some bad habits. And in fact, in those first six months, you want the new board members, the people that you have so rigorously and thoughtfully selected to the process to ask all the questions that might seem like stupid questions. They might seem like silly questions, but those are the questions that you will learn most from, right? Absolutely. If you think about it, the Enron fraud from 20 years ago would not have been uncovered if there wasn't a young, ambitious and very sort of brave journalist, Bethany McLean, who simply raised her hand and said, but I don't understand. I don't understand how this company is making money. Now, that's a very sort of hard thing for someone to say, right? Because people will say, oh, you're stupid. You don't understand, et cetera. But actually, 
not only was it the case that she didn't understand, nobody understood <laughs> because the company was built on a giant fraud. Now, of course, that's very un unusual. Fraud is very rare. But the point is you want board members who come into the room and who raise their hand and say, look, I don't understand how this works. Mm -hmm. If you've done your job right and you've attracted the right people to the board, those are precisely the people you want to raise their hand and say, I don't understand. So are you as a chair creating a culture, creating a set of shared beliefs where people who are being attracted to your board know that they will not only be allowed to, but encouraged to ask questions, even if they're seemingly silly questions throughout the process. That's what makes the process, that's what makes the, the board process and the board conversations stronger, right? So that of course assumes that you got the first step right, that you have the people right. If you've got the wrong people asking stupid questions, that's a waste of everybody's time. So you have to get the right people in the room but yeah. then the last thing you want to do once you have the right people in the room is to get them to shut up. <laughs> so, so that's that's where I think you want to get these two things to work together. And then right afterwards, the third point you are making is you talk about an alignment structure. Can you elaborate on this a bit? I think that here we have to take a step back and think about are the board members really being assessed, evaluated, and rewarded along the ways that create uh, value in the long run for the firm. And that sometimes raises some uncomfortable questions for the board. Oftentimes, board members might be compensated with, say, stock or options and things like that. It's fairly simple, we've learned over the course of the last 25 years, for a CFO or a CEO with malintent to manipulate stock prices. It's actually fairly simple to do that. Now, what prevents that from happening more often is that malintent is not as common as some in the press would make it out to be and so forth. So by and large, most people want to do the right thing. But it is actually fairly easy to commit fraud if you want to, even in a large complex organization. So ensuring that your board members are rewarded on the right metrics. So for instance, if your board members are rewarded on stock and the stock is easily manipulated, then do they have the right incentives to question decisions that might involve taking excessively risky bets on part of the firm? Mm. Do they have the right incentives to probe CEOs and CFOs when they're stretching or leveraging the firm beyond its capacity to sustain that when times are tough. Because as we all know from the moment we're living in, there will be good times and there will be less good times. And so how are we building resilience into the organization in the long run? Is the reward structure for boards and particularly for NEDs aligned with that kind of metric? Right Now, one issue where this becomes really sort of pressing in the context of the report I wrote for the audit firms is the following. Audit firms, for better or worse, I think largely for worse, tend to see their client, tend to personify their client as the CFO. That's a very dangerous thing because after all, as an NED, you are relying on the audit firm to tell you that the CFO is not up to no good. Right? You are relying on the audit firm to tell you that the performance measurement assumptions and the strategic assumptions underlying the corporate reporting are reasonable. 
the fact that that auditor on whom you rely so critically sees the CFO as their client rather than the NED as the client, that is very dangerous for you as an NED. You want the audit firm, you want the audit partner to see you as the client. That very rarely happens, in part because CFOs and CEOs are so powerful as personalities. So when I talk about alignment, I also mean about alignment in the supply chain, and in particular in the supply chain of advisors on whom you as a board member critically rely on to do your job. Are they aligned with the kind of things you need to be aligned on? And the vast majority of audit partners and the vast majority of CFOs are too close to each other, I think, for that relationship to keep NEDs comfortable. That requires a shift in the alignment process. And then the fourth point are processes. Why do processes matter in the culture of challenge? Look, there is something inherently uncomfortable about challenge. The whole point about creating a culture of challenge is to create a set of practices where people can disagree without being disagreeable. Mm. That's what we're trying to do. Now, in order to do that, you as the chair or you as a senior member on a board needs to normalize the process of challenge. You need to create processes that actually make those kinds of questions quite normal. Otherwise, the person asking the question each time they do so, it takes tremendous amount of emotional energy. Yeah. And you think about it, most people, they say, okay, I will invest maybe on one or two questions of sort of heavy emotional energy on my part. And after that, if I'm getting no traction or no uptake or no sort of positive resonance from the board, I'll su- shut up because you know nobody else seems to be interested. Yeah. That's very dangerous for you as a board, right? So your role as a chair is to ensure that the people who are asking the hard questions, who are asking even the stupid questions, feel like that process is normalized, feel like that process is something that they should keep doing. Look, if you think that someone has bad judgment and is consistently asking wrong questions, take them aside after the fact and say, you know, maybe this is overkill or this is right. But in the moment when that process is happening, encourage it, encourage it and sustain it and nourish it and normalize it because others will then see that and say, ah, This is an environment in which the process of challenge is actually part of why we're here, is actually normal. What are the three things our listeners should take away from this podcast? I think that the culture of challenge is perhaps the most important thing a board can do, particularly the leadership of a board can do, that building and sustaining a culture of challenge is actually a deeply tactical and pragmatic matter. There are some very simple and pragmatic steps that need to be taken in that regard. And finally, doing so is not just something about managing your liability or managing your litigation costs. Doing so is really about delivering on the mission of the organization and the mission of the firms in society. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much, Professor Ramana. My pleasure. How can we help you and your board to become more effective? We at Better Boards are always delighted to hear from you. Get in touch. You can best reach us on info at better-boards.com. Thank you for listening.